Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Greetings and welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson, and I apologize for being AWOL for the last couple of weeks, but I picked up a bad chest cold or something from one of my kids and had such a bad cough that for about a week and a half I couldn't speak more than a couple of sentences without launching into a coughing fit. That meant I had to postpone two episodes that I had scheduled with guests, including next week's guest, Pastor Lucas Miles, author of a very relevant new book called Woke Jesus. So stay tuned for that one. But today, I'm very pleased to say, my returning guest is the brilliant Heather McDonald, who has a brand new must-read book out, which we will discuss today. I'll bring her on in just a few minutes. But first, I want to set up that discussion by talking about something in the news that leaped out at me. I read an article this morning by a guest writer at Barry Weiss's Substack page called Is Justice Still Blind in Canada? It talks about a legal process in Canada whereby the attorneys for black and other minority criminal defendants can submit for the judge's sentencing consideration something called an Impact of Race and Culture Assessment, or IRCA. It's a report in which Black and racialized Canadians, as they put it, can demonstrate how systemic racism led them to commit their crimes. The logic behind this IRCA is that, as a black man or other minority, it was assumed that he had been subjected to a systemic bigotry that had limited his opportunities to build a meaningful and law-abiding life. It's meant to help the judge appreciate the convict's background and history. It apparently doesn't even have to cite any concrete instances of racism, not even microaggressions. All the report needs to do is suggest that the defendant has suffered under the thumb of systemic racism and feels disconnected from his culture. One defense attorney said, How can we pass judgment on a person without at least trying to understand what led them to that place? Canada's first official IRCA was submitted in 2014, and now it's just taken for granted among Canadian criminal defense attorneys, prosecutors, judges, and law professors that these assessments are a necessary tool for curbing the overrepresentation of black and indigenous prisoners. It's part of a broader movement that seeks to reimagine police, prisons, and the whole nature of justice. Now, I know this article is talking about Canada. But the United States has a similar movement, which manifests itself in calls to reverse the so-called mass incarceration of black convicts, or as the terminology here goes, not convicts, but justice-involved people. You can see it here also in the trend of George Soros-backed pro-crime district attorneys who inject race into every criminal proceeding. You can see it in the way that leftist politicians and the mainstream media excuse rioters and looters as being mostly peaceful and simply committing so-called crimes of poverty. You can see it in the way that these same pro-crime politicians and media members make martyrs out of black criminals like George Floyd or, more recently, Jordan Neely, who died after being subdued by a chokehold in a New York subway by a Marine vet who stepped in to take down this homeless black man who, had been, who has more than 40 previous arrests under his belt, including for violent crimes, and who was shouting 
and aggressively threatening riders on the subway. The idea behind this racialization of the criminal justice system is itself racist. It's typical progressive condescension and racism, which views blacks and other minorities as having no personal agency, that they are helpless victims of a systemically racist society, that they have no capacity to abide by the law, and that they are driven to commit crimes out of poverty or frustration or alienation or any of a number of other sociological excuses which are not extended to white criminals. This is part of the current surge of demands in the United States for equity. Not equality, remember, because we all want equality. But what the left wants now is equity, which is not the same thing. Equity is present discrimination to atone for past discrimination. And it's based on the Marxist worldview, which divides society into two camps, the oppressor and the oppressed. Now, I bring up all of this in the context of a brand new book by my guest today titled When Race Trumps Merit. It's a riveting read. It's an important book by my friend Heather McDonald, and I'm going to ask her about these developments in the field of law and order when I bring her on, which I'm going to do right now. So please stay with us here at the intersection of politics and culture. You do not want to miss this interview. And don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so that you don't miss any of the other important conversations we're having here. And remember, if you like what you hear, please leave a review. Don't touch that dial. Heather McDonald is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal and a New York Times bestselling author. Her award-winning journalism on the really critical issues of our times, such as higher education, immigration, and criminal justice, has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and everywhere else, basically. Among her previous books were The War on Cops and The Diversity Delusion. I've read both, and they are essential reading, like everything she writes. Uh, as is her latest brand new book, When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. She was actually my very first guest on the Right Take podcast. Heather McDonald, welcome back to the Right Take podcast. Well, it's great, and you've been expanding your reach so much, Mark, so it's a real honor to be with you again. Oh, it's an honor to have you back, as always. Congratulations on the book. Um, as readers of yours would expect, it's extraordinarily well-researched, but never dry. In fact, I would call it a page turner, which is not something you can say for a lot of nonfiction books, but it's it's just a fantastic read. Um, as you know, concepts that we used to take for granted as social positives, like colorblind equality, uh, merit, these things are now considered dirty words that uphold white privilege and white supremacy. The idea of a meritocracy, for example, which would have been completely uncontroversial not that long ago, is now denigrated as a complete fiction that just props up the oppressive white power structure in America. What is the reasoning or the logic, if there is any, behind this growing phenomenon that is central to your book, this idea of disparate impact? Well, the reasoning is that any standard that has a negative impact on blacks is by definition racist. Uh, and that's an argument that can be made only 
by suppressing the actual facts, which is that there are vast academic skills gaps that make the achievement of diversity under a meritocratic system impossible. And there are vast criminal offending gaps that make the expectation that our prison population would mirror that of the nation also unrealistic. Uh, but the the critique of merit, the critique of excellence, the critique of colorblind standards is a way of making sure that people don't look at the actual realities of, of uh our race situation today and to shift attention uh, onto what is really a, a phantom problem, which is this allegation of, of ubiquitous racism. And how did we, let's talk briefly about the history behind this, this whole social justice revolution. How did we go from the successes of the civil rights movement um, and embodying as a society Martin Luther King's declaration that character and not skin color is what really matters. How did we go from that to this social justice claim that identity and not character is what really matters? Well, I think uh, Americans are understandably racially guilty because our past was so deplorable for a long time. It was so deeply hypocritical with regards to our stated principles, and it, it took way too long to knock down both the legal barriers to integration and then the social informal barriers, the, the final battles of the civil rights movement in the South in the 50s and 60s was just shocking, you know, the extent to which you saw really uh, ugly, ugly, barbaric behavior. And so Americans understandably have a quite a sort of guilty conscience about our past. Uh, I would say as much as I am absolutely willing to be very honest about how bad our past was, I'm also not going to ignore the fact that we are not that country today. I am absolutely confident that we do not have a problem today of systemic racism. The, the reality is the exact opposite, Mark. There's not an, an institution today that is not twisting itself into knots to hire and promote as many blacks as possible. So as the barriers did come down, what everybody hoped would happen didn't happen. We didn't have uh, equality of outcomes. We didn't see that blacks were achieving at the same rate. And that is very disturbing to Americans of good intentions. Uh, and so we've rather quickly started developing a whole set of explanations for why we don't have equal outcomes that focus not on problems in the black community and in black culture, but rather claiming that whites are still holding blacks back. Uh, and so any idea of colorblindness had to be cast aside in favor of vast racial preferences 
and an entire excuse-making machine uh, that that would explain ongoing racial disparities without having to look at those inner city pathologies. Uh, let's talk about uh, some specifics about uh, this notion of disparate impact. Let's talk about the field of of medicine. In our previous podcast, we actually did talk about uh, critical race theory and some of these other uh, racialized strategies of the left um, having infected the medical field and the impact that it's having and going to have in medicine. You write about that in the opening chapter of your new book, which is called, well, the chapter is called Medicine's Racial Reckoning. I'm not sure that a lot of Americans really grasp the extent to which this kind of wokeness we could call it that, is corrupting healthcare and what that will mean for us in the very near future. Can you enlighten them about uh, about that, about what's happening in the field of medicine? Yes, there's not a single standard for medical licensing that is not under fire, that hasn't already been lowered or will be lowered. And uh, the way we conduct medical research that, you know, will would ordinarily give us hope for eventually understanding and curing cancer and Alzheimer's disease. The way we conduct medical research is now being distorted because of the anti-racism narrative and the white supremacy narrative. The way we understand racial health disparities is being distorted because of the white supremacy. So, for instance, uh, students applying to medical school take objective colorblind Test known as the Medical College Admission Test, the MCATs. These are the counterpart of the SATs for medical schools. And blacks have scores on the MCAT exams that are at the absolute bottom of the curve. And uh, so we now have, and we've had this really since the 1970s because this is what the original challenge to racial preferences was based on in Baki versus uh, the California regents. Even back in the 70s, law schools were admitting black law students with MCAT scores that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by whites. And so Baki was a white applicant to the University of California Davis Medical School who had superb grades, superb letters of recommendation, superb MCAT scores, but he kept on being rejected. uh, And he brought a lawsuit saying, the reason I'm being rejected is you have these set-aside programs for black applicants who are admitted with vastly lower scores. uh, And that's taken the seat that I would otherwise have earned on the merits. And the Supreme Court said, well, too bad, Baki, uh, we think diversity is an important goal in education, including medical education. So it's okay to discriminate against you because you're white. That's been going on, but it's it's probably gotten worse since then. And so you have black medical students who are admitted, again, with vastly lower scores. And not surprisingly, once in medical school, they don't do as well because they are being brought into particular schools for which they're not competitively qualified, which isn't to say that they're not appropriately qualified for some medical schools, but because of racial preferences uh, across the board, black medical students are are catapulted into schools for which they are not competitively qualified. And so they do really badly. The uh, medical licensing exam 
for determining who gets to be qualified as a doctor, who gets licensed as a doctor, the first part of that exam happens after the second year of, of medical school. And it tests basic classroom knowledge in pathology, anatomy, physiology. Well, again, Black's scores on this first part of the medical licensing exam are rock bottom. And as such, they interfere with Black's ability to land their favorite, their preferred residencies. So what the medical licensing board has decided to do is get rid of the scores. It has the score, the test has a disparate impact on Black medical schools, students. So we'll get rid of the scores. And so last year, part two of the medical licensing exam went from a scored exam to pass-fail so that any hospital residency can't know where the students rank on their part one exam. And so they won't be able to, to choose from the best students. They'll have to just have a very blunt score just simply in order to make sure that blacks are not handicapped by their objectively lower scores. Pressure is on across the board. There's many more aspects of ranking medical students based on their actual academic skills, not based on race. All of those are being torn down. And medical research, uh, the funders, whether it's the federal government or private funders like the Howard uh, Hughes Medical Institute, have all decided that they care more about the diversity of medical labs than they do about the actual medical qualifications of people working in, in cancer labs or Alzheimer's labs. And medical schools are now requiring a lot of social justice theory um, in addition to uh, medicine now. So, in fact, you quote the American Association of Medical Colleges as saying that newly minted doctors have to display, quote, a knowledge of the intersectionality of a patient's multiple identities and how each identity may present varied and multiple forms of oppression or privilege related to clinical decisions and practice, unquote. Heather, how does being indoctrinated in intersectionality and that kind of social justice jargon, how does that help new doctors keep somebody alive whose body's been shattered in a car crash? Nothing. It does nothing. In fact, it hurts them because all learning is zero sum, all time spent on intersectionality, which is a completely bogus concept that is trying to make sure that the victim narrative is permanent. Every every hour spent doing that and, and learning these vacuous bromides about social justice and racial justice is an hour or a day or a week spent not learning, uh, you know, how you respond to a body in shock and make sure that a brain that has been damaged in a car crash can continue receiving oxygen so as not to go brain dead it's it's a zero sum game and the leaders of our medical schools the the AMA uh are are absolutely betraying their profession and making sure that doctors are less competent in the future to practice and and patients don't really care you know someone who's undergoing a a life-saving procedure doesn't really care about the skin color of the doctors and nurses working on him or her do they well, I, you know, they shouldn't, uh, and I probably, I would probably guess that people 
that are the people pushing this don't either. I don't know. Like, I have no idea if the leftist insanity has gone so far now that there are people who have sincerely persuaded themselves that that it matters and if so i mean let the let the proponents of this completely destructive race-based ideology be the first to sign up for the products of this regime and you know they'll be the guinea pigs if they if they really think if they really think that merit is a pseudo concept and that it is merely a prop for white supremacy let them be the ones to be the 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 you know people be operated on in a world without merit. I think that's a great idea. What about the corruption of science, generally speaking, beyond the field of medicine? Can you give us an example from the field of of scientific research and tell us what it means for the future of science um, to substitute racial quotas for merit? Well, the federal science funders like the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, Department of Energy's uh, Office of Science, the CDC, they have all declared that what they want to see in medical research labs is diversity. And so they will give a big priority in their granting out of of federal research dollars to uh, proposals that say, well, we're going to hire by race or sex or, or gender identity uh, they've even expanded in the hope of, you know, creating more categories to try and get minority, underrepresented minorities in. Things like to work on the uh, NIH's brain initiative of neurology that is hoping to find cures for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease or autism or depression. That if you, as a child, were in foster care or you your family used the welfare program WIC, that gives you an advantage in getting medical funding. Well, these are completely irrelevant criteria for deciding whether you are the most likely to break through on understanding brain proteins to be able to figure out how to save people for the tragedy of Alzheimer's disease. But we are diverting money. And and the one thing that kills me in particular is the NIH is now deciding on what our science priorities should be based not on what we actually need to know, but in order to get more grants going to black researchers. So it turns out that black medical research do less pure science. So they're doing less of genomic research, you know, of trying to understand genetic markers of disease or, uh, you know, how, how diabetes works within cells, pure science, blacks do less of that. And they do more social, social science research on health disparities and racism in the health system. So the, the NIH is moving funding from pure science into racial disparities research simply because that's a way to getting getting more money into black researchers not because they've made a judgment that that's how we best help americans escape disease uh so it's a purely extraneous criterion based simply on a racial ideology not on anything scientific
Well, there's a lot more to be said about the subversion of the fields of medicine and science. I find this a really terrifying aspect of the topic and of your book. But let's let's move on to the middle section of your book, which focuses on what the pursuit of equity is doing in culture and the arts. This middle section actually constitutes about half the book, which I think is um, a reflection of your appreciation for what our obsession with race is doing to our civilization in the broader sense than just the political and scientific and social ramifications. And that's one of the things I actually love about your writing and your perspective is that you always have your eye on the bigger picture. You even use the phrase civilizational self-cancellation to refer to what we're facing in the West. These corrosive ideas like the pursuit of equity, they really do threaten to destroy the Western ideals of the true, the good, and the beautiful, don't they? Yes, there's not a single artistic tradition that's come out of Europe that is not now in the crosshairs of being accused of being racist simply because our demographic past in Europe was white. Uh, That makes it inevitability that our artistic tradition is going to have white artists. That's not a sign of racism. It was a sign of simply what the population was then, just as it's, we don't view that, we don't lodge the same critique against African art because the, the makers of, you know, the, the, the tribal totems and, and fertility symbols were, were black Africans or Chinese classical opera. We don't say, well, it's racist against blacks or whites because it was created by Chinese people, but only the West turns on itself and says that our classical music tradition is racist. Our theater tradition is racist. Ballet is racist. Theater, you know, uh, visual arts, painting is racist because it was created by whites. And now you have these absurd demands that are being made by these, you know, black music performers that are demanding that 25% or 50% of every orchestral season have black works that are being performed or the black that orchestras be 25% black. These are not feasible demands. And the reason that we don't have uh, 25% people of color in, in orchestras is not because of racism. These are meritocratic standards often conducted behind a screen. Asians are just taking over in the classical music world today uh, because they practice like crazy. You know, if this was a white supremacist organization, I wouldn't see at the New York Philharmonic, you know, over half of the violin, first violins are Asian. That's way out of proportion to Asians' population. But but they're absolutely fanatically dedicated to this tradition at this point. So we're teaching young people to hate our most precious and sublime artistic traditions based on the complete irrelevancies of race and sex. I had to laugh at one part in your book when you mentioned that there was a conductor who, who when he was referring to the uh, pr- this abandonment of the colorblind auditions, and he said, well, then why do we have auditions at all? Why not just send in a headshot? Yeah, this is great. This is a black, black conductor, black violinist, grew up His parents both went to Howard University. They were both piano students. They gave him a background in classical music. He said, we listened to Chopin Nocturnes. We listened to Bach Partitas, Beethoven Symphonies. Nobody thought to complain that this was oppressive because these were 
white Chopin and Bach and Beethoven were white. We also listened to William Grant still, uh, you know, other black composers, Scott Joplin. Uh, but, but it was inclusive. It was not exclusive. And, and McLaughlin Williams will admit that there was in the past, there was discrimination against black musicians and his own father, uh, had a very difficult time with racism in the Coast Guard and subsequently in his piano career. But he said McLaughlin Williams is, is able to be objective and say, you know, the reason that blacks now think that if they don't get something, if they don't get a job or if they don't get a promotion, it must be because of racism is because in the past that almost always was the case, but that is not our reality today. And, and so he's absolutely, uh, uh, you know, critical and, and, and dismissive of this idea that we should be hiring on the basis of race today. He can look around and say, no, the classical music world today is fanatically meritocratic. All that a conductor cares about is, are you going to be the best French horn player that will not flub that exposed horn solo in a Richard Strauss tone poem? You mentioned him uh, as part of a chapter called The Abstainers, uh, in which you uh, write about a few inspirational holdouts against this trend. Is is there another example you could mention of maybe a musician or a conductor or an opera house that resisted this call for equity in the arts? And what's been the how much success have they had doing that? Well, there's been a few opera companies that have actually stood up to the race hustle, and it's quite amazing. Uh, these are by and large left wing organizations. Whether uh, it was the Long Beach Opera in California or Tulsa Opera in, in Oklahoma. Uh, Tulsa Opera commissioned a whole program in commemoration of the Greenwood Massacre, which was a race riot in, I think, 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where there was a incident that still we don't really know what happened, but maybe a, a black uh, young boy racially harassed a white uh, employee, but maybe not. Uh, we really don't know the facts, but but that was sort of the understanding at the time. And so eventually whites rampaged in a black neighborhood and burned down businesses. It was a very, very ugly incident. So the um, hundred year commemoration of this came up in 2021. And so Tulsa Opera commissioned a whole bunch of works from black composers for a program that was going to be called Greenwood Remembers. And one of the composers they commissioned was this utter race hustler um, who wrote a, a work, uh, Daniel Romain is his name, who wrote a work uh, that was very anti-American. But he had the good fortune that it was going to be sung. He was lined up with one of the great black sopranos, mezzo-sopranos, Denise Graves. And to have Denise Graves perform one of your works is quite a feather in your cap. I mean, it's something that any composer would, would absolutely die for. But Denise Graves looked at the work that 
Daniel Romain had written in the text. And she said, this is just too anti-American for me. It's not, it doesn't comport with my values. Can you write something differently? Well, Daniel Romain immediately started playing the race card against Tulsa Opera uh, and and sort of overlooked the fact that it was a black soprano who was deciding that she didn't want to sing his work as is. And he started playing the race card because Tulsa Opera is headed by a white guy. Uh, and, and there was also the guy that was helping the head of Tulsa Opera, the head of Tulsa Opera's Tobias Pickett, the other guy helping arrange this concert was himself black. He's an assistant conductor at the Metropolitan Opera, a gay black man. Romain started playing the race card, saying the only reason that he was not being, you know, they were asking him to revise his work was because he was black. This was insane. It was absolutely insane. Uh, and and so Tulsa Opera didn't back down. It said, look it, either you you revise this work according to Denise Graves, or we're not going to perform it. And so Remain didn't back down. Uh, and so they didn't perform it. And so he would then went on all of his Facebook and said, I'm the victim of racism. This is what happens when a white guy organizes a concert, white supremacy, white supremacy. It was just a completely insane narrative. He ended up using another black soprano this Janae Bridges who's a very radical when it comes to race they recorded it in Central Park um it was a really uh trivial banal piece of writing I mean it's just it's absolutely mediocre you can listen to it online it's got these very uh insipid new age noodlings in the piano um, and and a, a composer said to me, well, that's probably the real reason Denise Graves didn't want to sing it is because she knew it was so bad, you know, and it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't help him. Meanwhile, the Greenwood concert uh, program con- went on. I reviewed it. It's it contained some very wonderful works. It was surprisingly free of racial rancor. I mean, the most radical work was by uh, another composer that was. Um, much, you know, was, was, was pretty politically pointed, but the rest, there was a lot of love songs. So anyway, Tobias Pickett and like further evidence of like how ridiculous the charges against Tobias Pickett, the head of Tulsa opera, he, uh, he used the first trans, uh, baritone. See, I can't remember. Was this like male to female? It's so confusing. Trans stuff, male to female, male to female. Anyway, female to male, first trans singer to do Don Giovanni and he's commissioned a work celebrating some trans commission. I I can't remember Tobias Pickett is probably gay himself. Anyway, this is not, not some conservative Christian out there. You know, he's about as left wing as it gets. And yet there was Romaine trying to take him down. So Tulsa opera is still standing. Long beach opera is still standing. Moral is, do not allow yourself to be cowed and terrorized and emasculated, if I can use that word, by these phony racism charges. Stand up to it and 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 proceed forward, and you will you will be able to survive. And what about uh, what about the rest of the art world? What's happening there? Can you talk a little bit about how museums are being impacted by this pursuit of equity? You have a couple of great chapters about museums. 
Well, museums are really a horror show. Uh, they are putting up wall text, telling people to see these beautiful Dutch Baroque age, golden age of, of, of Dutch painting, 17th century Baroque. To see still lives is just really all about colonialism and slavery. Uh, don't don't allow yourself to lose yourself in the beauty of these compositions. Uh, they the Metropolitan Opera, I'm sorry, Metropolitan Museum rather, um, stages show that is the absolute nadir of of artistic self annihilation. It was based on a bust created by a 19th century French sculptor. Jean-Baptiste Carpeau is the name of the sculptor. And it was, this bust is an abolitionist work. It's, it's anti-slavery. Uh, but because it was created by a white sculptor, the Metropolitan Museum and its new anti-racism incarnation decided that this was by definition a white supremacist work that is making the argument that actually blacks should be enslaved, that their only reason for existence is to be slave, enslaved, uh, that slavery is their national condition, that in order to be free, they must first be slaves. All of these are propositions that are completely ludicrous. But in order to try and make that argument about this anti-slavery work required the Met to turn on and falsify every proposition of Western art, such as if an artist does not name his model, in this case, he's a racist artist because Carpeau used a model to sculpt his anti-racist bust and didn't name the model. Well, practically no artist in the history of Western art has ever named his model. The only reason we ever know the names of models is if there's some salacious biography that's gotten out where we know that the artist was maybe carrying on an affair with his model. And so somehow we know about it that way, but it's the absolute artistic norm for artists not to name their models. It is not a sign of white supremacy that in this one case, Carpo didn't name his model. The Met also has to argue that if an artist portrays a nude female body, that that is racist because in this case, Carpo uh, one breast of his model here is, is bare. Well, the history of Western art is thousands, hundreds of thousands of white nudes. It is not racist to portray the nude, but that's what the Met had to say in order to get its thesis out. It, it, it turned on everything about art in order to pursue its anti-racist agenda. And it's, it's a complete betrayal of everything the Met exists to do, funders should completely pull their money. As museums get more and more apologetic about uh, presenting the works of artists who were the greatest in Western civilization or the greatest of humanity, for that matter, do you think we're going to see more and more of this kind of self-cancellation of the incredible legacy of our civilization in these museums as they just uh, erase the, all of the former greats to make way for uh, racial equity. Yes, uh, and and art art history classes, art history departments now have these complete double standards. They apply, you know, this deconstructive narrative only to Western art. They 
you know, try to show the racial subtext, the oppression subtext. Meanwhile, art from other cultures that cultures that were far more oppressive than ours is treated with respect. It's put on a pedestal. It's the artist's intentions are taken at face value. Um, so students are being taught to hate their own civilization. And uh, it's, it's, it betrays the whole purpose of an art museum. You do write in the book that the greatest sin of the diversity crusaders is to teach students to revile some of the most sublime creations of the human spirit. And you add that they're stripping the future of everything that gives human life meaning. Uh, as a former humanities major myself, I could not agree more with that. And I, I found this whole section of the book to be very um, meaningful and important and disturbing, too. Uh, you do. I, I want, let me ask you a theoretical or philosophical or aesthetic question here. You refer in the subtitle of your book to the uh, the fact that the pursuit of equity destroys beauty. For those readers who might find the threats to science and to medicine and to law and order to be more immediate and serious concerns, can you explain why destroying beauty should matter to us so much? Well, art is our primary means of understanding other human beings and to get inside somebody else's mind and to get outside of our own narrow, petty existence and narrow, petty selves and uh, to get into the past. You know, if novels, older forms of literature give you insight into different ways of being human, uh, it's, it's, there's nothing that's a more dramatic spellbinding story than the, the evolution of human style. So it's utterly mysterious and fascinating the fact that in the Middle Ages, when people were writing stories, they used very different literary forms. They used epic, they used romance, they used allegory. That's how they portrayed their human feelings and existence. And eventually you move towards the realistic 19th century human novel. All of those different forms of expression, which are very, they can be alien to us now. They're different. That's precisely why they are precious because we don't live that way any longer, but people did live that way in the past. It's a way of saying, my God, what must it have been like to live in the 15th century? What were their concerns? How did they view each other? How did they view love and loss and death? What was it like in the 18th century, in the Augustan period of poetry? How did they think about government, of kinship? All of this gives us a way of getting out of our present environment and, and experiencing other ways of being. And it also is a way of losing yourself in beauty uh, because music, you trace the movement of another human soul. In a symphony, you trace the movement of Beethoven's soul as he struggles through the development of themes, of melodies, of feeling. Uh, there's a linear experience in a Chopin nocturne. It gives you an experience of pathos, of yearning, of eros, of tragedy, of sorrow. Schubert's song cycles give you experience of 
of yearning, of tragedy that you would otherwise never have. And, and so all of these artistic forms are created by people with, in many cases, a sensitivity to what it is to be human that we wouldn't have, but we can put on their identities and their, and their experiences and feelings. And so if you have never, if you've limited yourself to the pop culture, I'm sorry, I'm going to be critical here. I'm going to be judgmental. If your human experience has been passively receiving corporate adolescent geared pop culture all your life, you have missed out. You are going to die missing out on some of the greatest aspects of human history and millennia of human civilization. And I urge you to try and do some catch-up work before you die. It, 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 it torments me that I'm going to die without having fully plumbed the classical music tradition. And, and the more I've experienced of that tradition, the greater my life will be. And that's true for literature and for art. So get to it, guys. Yes, it really diminishes your your life and your humanity to miss out on those things. Beautifully said, that answer. I knew if I asked you that question about beauty that you would be able to take it and really soar with it. So <laughs> I uh, was looking forward to your answer on that. Uh, speaking of the culture, and this is kind of a tangential question, uh, conservative politicians today seem to be at odds with each other about the extent to which our side should be engaging with political opponents on cultural issues, like Ron DeSantis is in Florida, for example. They either they either don't grasp the significance of the culture war, or they think it's just not good political strategy to um, get involved in those issues. Now, I suspect I know what you would say, and I think it's the same thing I would say, but what is your feeling about that debate, about how to what extent conservatives should uh, engage in the culture war politically? Yes. Well, the strategy issue is something that I'm not really capable of addressing. And it may be as an empirical matter uh, that it doesn't affect voters. I suspect it's hard for me to believe. I mean, it really is. And obviously, you know, a lot of it when we talk about the culture wars, uh, the trans stuff is a very large part of that. Um, and you know, it is very hard for me to believe that parents don't have an instinctive understanding that it is child abuse to rub children's noses prematurely into knowledge of sexuality. It doesn't I don't care if it's trans or gay or heterosexual sexuality. None of that should be foisted on children before they're, as far as I'm concerned, in college. In college, um, but. It may be the case that there's these damn soccer moms who think, oh, well, we have to be so inclusive. And uh, that means if if the left is making these preposterous claims that – I mean, what, what I find so astounding, Mark, is that the left media like the New York Times or Washington Post or CNN will say, oh, it's conservatives who are waging the culture war. No, excuse me. 
the left is waging the culture war. They are tearing everything down. And if there's ever any little minute pushback, it's the conservatives who are accused of politicizing things. No, we're simply defending their going on the offense. Um, as far as race issues, which is the focus kind of on my book, because it's the race, it's the disparate impact concept, which is tearing down meritocratic standards and excellence. Um, I would just say that that too is something that is hard to navigate because Americans are so cowed by the racism charge and they are so filled with goodwill and they believe that the, their duty as non-racist Americans is to turn their eyes away from the skills gap and the crime gap and to button up their lips and blame themselves for phantom racism that allegedly explains ongoing racial disparities. It may also be as an empirical political matter that if a politician talks about that, there's more negative than positive. I don't know. Um, that's, you know, those are really strategic questions. I would just say that if you are a politician that believes in sacrificing yourself and putting yourself out to save the country, you have to talk about these questions because if you don't, it is all coming down. So yes, to your question, is it significant? Yes, it is the most significant thing. I, I, I don't think there's, I mean, the economy is obviously significant and the, we cannot underestimate the hatred of free market trade and entrepreneurship and, and gov b businesses being able to build their business and operate in a market. We cannot underestimate the hatred of success, of economic success on the part of the left. Uh, and certainly the whole green stuff, the ele electric vehicle fantasies are just terrifying. So those are important, but the culture issues are also going to destroy this civilization if we don't stand up to the phony charge of racism. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it all starts with the culture. As the late Andrew Breitbart used to say, politics flows downstream from culture. And I think that's uh, never been more true than today. Um, in the final section of your book, you write about the impact of the pursuit of equity on law and order. And you write about um, disparate impact analysis having had its most concrete effect on the criminal justice system. What has been the impact on local and national crime rates by making the avoidance of disparate impact, the guiding principle of law enforcement? The impact has been the largest one-year spike in homicide, excuse me, in this nation's country in 2020 after the George Floyd race riots when prosecutors stopped prosecuting criminal offenses because of disparate impact on black criminals, when police officers stopped uh, making stops and arrests because of disparate impact on black criminals, and so in 2020, you had a 29% increase in homicide. As I say, that's the largest one-year increase in the nation's history. Overwhelmingly, the additional homicide victims were black, including hundreds of black children gunned down in drive-by shootings. You have the ongoing anarchy in cities 
because we don't want to arrest shoplifters. We don't want to arrest looters. We don't want to arrest flash mob marauders because doing so will have a disparate impact on blacks. Carjackings are spreading out of the inner city. You know, robbings, people are being beaten up. Uh, so it's it, we are absolutely tearing down the foundation of civil society. There was an article this morning by a guest writer at Barry Weiss's Substack called Is Justice Still Blind in Canada? And it talks about a, a legal process in Canada whereby the attorneys for uh, black and other minority defendants can submit for the judge's sentencing consideration, something called an impact of race and culture assessment or an IRCA. It's a report that demonstrates how systemic racism led the defendant to commit their crime. Uh, Now, I know that article is talking about Canada, but is that kind of openly race-based legal process, is that where we are headed in the United States? Yes, absolutely. We are headed there, Mark. We're, you know, we're doing that, in fact, in in many instances. That's why we are not prosecuting the law. If if viewers or, or listeners are rather confused about all these progressive prosecutors and what's going on here, everything in the criminal justice system today, everything is driven by disparate impact. We are unwinding the criminal justice system because it has a disparate impact on black criminals. And the reason for that disparate impact is not racism. It's the vastly higher rates of criminal offending. Black juveniles in the post-George Floyd world die of gun homicide at 100 times the rate of white juveniles. That's because they're being shot at equally elevated rates. Black juveniles are committing gun homicide at equally elevated rates. So the Canada system is is much more explicit. Um, but but it's the same thing. We are deciding to not prosecute black criminals. That's different. I mean, that's even worse in a sense than saying we're going to give them a lower sentence because they're black. So uh, this this is just a continuity of what's going on here. Uh, okay, final question. It's actually a two-part question. Your conclusion is titled Saving Meritocracy saving civilization. When you look at the culture today, are you optimistic that we can do that, that we can reverse course and seize the momentum in the culture war? Uh, And related question, what do you suggest that the average person do to help make that happen? Well, I tend to not be an optimist by nature. And uh, I I, I know what's going to have, the only way to reverse it is for people to stop being cowed by the charge of racism. You just cannot back down. You cannot apologize. You've got to arm yourself with the facts. Um, And if people say it is not racist to have a medical licensing exam that is colorblind and has high standards, it is not racist to venerate art that is based on beauty, Uh, it is not racist to enforce the law in a colorblind manner, uh, if people st- start saying that, we do have a chance. Uh, and I ordinarily would be pessimistic, but I have to say that I am heartened by the initiatives of people like Governor Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, that he is actually taking practical steps to try and cut back on the racial extremism of universities and saying we're not going to fund 
the diversity departments any longer. We're not going to fund departments that have loyalty oaths. These are all very positive steps. And um, I, I wish him well. And I think, you know, that he earned, he deserves just enormous credit for that. And, and there's being, taken up elsewhere, but DeSantis is really the leader in this. What ordinary people can what ordinary people can do is get the facts and, you know, it's always offensive to do a plug, but the book does contain the data that allows you to push back against the racism narrative, whether it's in meritocratic institutions or crime. Uh, and if you're ever in a position, say, you know, if your children come home from school and say, oh, my God, we're such a racist society, or as a white male, you know, I, I better step aside because I'm the source of all problems. Uh, know the facts that will allow you to fight back against your school's just totalitarian ideology uh, and, 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 you know, be willing with your friends as well to not accept or be silent in the face of false narratives about the United States. Yeah, it's going to be an uphill battle, that's for sure. But our civilization is literally at stake. Heather, thank you very much for your time and your insights today. Apart from buying your new book, When Race Trumps Merit, which I can't recommend highly enough, how can people keep up with what you are doing? Well, I have a Twitter uh, account, which I can't even tell you what the handle is because I don't run it, but it's a, it's, it does post you know, a lot of my appearances and writing. So if you just Google Heather MacDonald and Twitter, it should take you there. So that's probably the most efficient way besides the book. Thank you, Heather. Thank you very much for coming back to the Right Take podcast. Heather MacDonald, please keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate it. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.